really excited to talk talk to you because we we end up having when we do finally get on the phone together or the few times we've gotten to be in person together we have mm-hmm. such really great in-depth conversations and mm-hmm. i am joined today by my former supervisor from democracy for america and one of the most amazing um thoughtful electoral organizers i've been blessed to meet and know uh annie weinberg who is also like my 80s baby you know 90s <laughs> teen soul sister like um i am the diana to her Anne. if you're anna green gables fan like i am so happy to have you here chopping up with me about all the things today yeah, and Noah, I'm so excited and honored to be here. And Diana to Anne, that's like, um, that's amazing. Uh, yeah, I'm so overjoyed to get to talk. I mean, you get to be Anne because it's like, I wouldn't automatically just let you be Anne just because you have like reddish hair and uh-huh. you're Annie. Yeah. Right. But I really feel like between the two of us, you definitely <laughs> have more Anne energy, <laughs> like just naturally. Oh. Um and and I'm definitely like always excited to go along with your visioning, mm-hmm. like, you know, processes and the, the big planning and thoughts. And I've learned so much for you since we first met back in like 2017, I think it was. I was actually thinking about um, it like when the first time we met in person. And I feel like it was. It was Netroots here in Atlanta, I think. It was. was the first time we met in, in person. It was. I remember. Um, and we purchased uh we just had heard about the game of thrones dudes trying to make confederate on mm-hmm. hbo and we bought yeah. a bunch of domains because we were like what the hell <laughs> are you kidding me right now <laughs> like how how dare that first question is how dare you second question is also how dare you and then we just right. bought a bunch of domains in the middle of the night in the lobby of uh atlanta networks and <laughs> A beautiful friendship was born. I know. And um, again, you know, in 2018 election cycle, got a chance to work together, um, you know, endorsing some great, you know, local candidates up and down uh, the, the coast mm-hmm. and across the, 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 the country. We and now the- here we are talking about like all the things. I mean, you've been doing some great work with Movement School and mm-hmm. just all the other things that you had going on. So, I mean, like part of why I wanted to bring you on to kind of talk a little bit more about like, you know, people look at electoral work, right? And they see the election cycle. They see the traditional campaign infrastructure, but there is so much more to the electoral space and ethos that really doesn't get like drilled down upon um, outside of particular discussion spaces, or if you just happen to be in the hallways at something like a Netroots or a Roots Camp, because that's where the real magic happens, y'all. Mm-hmm. Like, not mm-hmm. to take that's away true. from the amazing panels people do pull together, but there is a lot of magic that happens in the hallways, that happens like in the hotel lobby where, you know, the meeting of the minds can really take place. And you know, having shared space physically and in conversation with you, we've really been able to to talk through what is it to build collective power in the electoral context, and 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 how should we be helping to train and build with folks coming into electoral spaces so that we're not just you know getting a win as in yes we got someone elected, but that we're actually shifting power and change in a direction leading towards equity and justice right so mm-hmm. like Annie like and just just can you just tell us just a little bit about your background like how you even came into you know doing this really deep electoral organizing work um and and, and just fight alongside folks you know pushing yeah. for equity and justice yeah um well where to start so you know I grew up in Pittsburgh um and have uh, my parents are pretty political. Like my mom took me canvassing for judges. I remember in Pennsylvania when I was really little, I think my first canvas was like seven years old. Um, and uh, there's a lot of hills in Pittsburgh. So she'd always be like, you know, you can take that one um, for the lip drops and things. Like I grew up with folks that um, thought about these things and um, were engaged in that way, which I am grateful for. Uh, and then 
I started doing environmental justice work. I was living in uh, New York City and the apartment building I was living in was full of lead paint. And so all the kids in it were getting um, sick. And I started volunteering with the tenants' rights organizations in the city. Uh, and in it, I kind of felt like, oh, this organizing is like an art and like a science and a thing that I could learn how to do. Like there are people who seem to be doing this all the time and that's amazing. Um, so that was sort of my entry point into organizing. And then um, I went on and worked at Move On for a while where I was supporting the council network, which was amazing. Um, you know, real grassroots leaders all over the country getting tools online to, I mean, now we probably call it distributed organizing, but that wasn't the word for it that we were using then, right? But people hosting vigils and rallies and days of action for healthcare access or to challenge, um, uh, you know, corporate, um, corporate control over our political process, right? And the leaders I met there, I just loved. I learned so much from, you know, I was in Minnesota and Nebraska and, um, and Michigan um, and just really uh, connected with a lot of people who were like, what does it look like to take more ownership over the decisions that are impacting our lives? Um, and so it was there that I met my good friend Ilya and we were working, this is back in like Tea Party Republican heyday, right? So we've been working on Wisconsin elections and uh, if you remember that time frame, it did not work out for folks that hold progressive values in 2010. Um, so we were like driving back really sad after the 2010 elections, like Russ Feingold had lost, a bunch of candidates had lost. And we were like, we just need people to run for office who will say what they mean and what they believe um, into a microphone without apology. Uh, and then a while later, he was like, Annie, what it, so we had this plan to recruit people to do it. And that was like a vision for it. And then at some point he was like, Annie, what if I did it? And I was like, that's a wild idea. Okay, let's go. And then I like broke my lease and moved across cities to manage his campaign. And that was one of the most like transformative, meaningful things. You know, we um, just really built deeply with people. And I learned about like, you know, what it takes to build a comms program and a field program and a fundraising program that is a reflection of values, right? Um, and we were little, right? Like, we always say, like, he was like 12 and I was 12 and a half and we were like, let's go for it. Um, but, um, yeah, so I think that's how I got to... Um, Democracy for America and looking to try to build campaigns um, and support campaigns that are flowing from a clear vision of, you know, what politics can be like, you know, um, across the realms, right? That it's not just about one tactic uh, or what a candidate says, but it's the whole campaign culture um, that we need to be great for us to build the power that we deserve. So... Mm, building the power that we deserve like and just thinking about like some of the you know just the, the the work that you've been doing around like getting like shifting right like voters mm -hmm. in, in in organizing and movement spaces you know one thing we've talked about um I mean you and I've talked about this going back to uh the election cycle in 2018 when we were you know um trying to figure out what it looked like uh what did it look like to have progressive values at particular levels of office, right? And like, we understood it, like with the congressional candidates we were, you know, that was, that was being endorsed and stuff. We had particular like policies and things like that. And state level, we, we still had a pretty good understanding, but when we were getting down to the local level, just how the politics and dynamics of particular offices can change depending upon like maybe certain things weren't as important um, if we were talking about someone running for a water district commissioner or something like that, like some of these really niche nuanced seats, um, 
I mean, we kind of had a good understanding when we're talking about like Justice of the Pieces and which y'all, mm. yes, Justice of the Pieces are a thing out West. They don't just marry people like on TV. <laughs> <laughs> they are actually a thing uh, and they are actually a, a very important function of the beginnings of the criminal justice system in some states like Arizona and Texas, you know, uh, New Mexico going out West. But like, you know, talking through that and really like getting focused on like what are our values and what are we looking for in candidates or and then simultaneously how are we also helping candidates come along with us in that Mm -hmm. process right um can you talk to me a little bit about like kind of that that support right like yes we have standards we want people to like check off all these boxes but how we're actually also organizing the candidates and and the, the 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 coalitions that we're building around candidates to, to understand not just what the, you know, standard progressive line is, but really like helping people come along to understand these concepts and ideas and vision what's a new possibility. Mm. I love this. And I feel like you are like such a visionary around this stuff. Like the, um, I just remember, you know, in 2018 and 2017 going through with like, you'd be like, we're going to transform this school board district or like, we're going to deal with these county commissioner seats, right? Um, Because it's true that some of these municipal, um, these municipal seats right now are places that can make huge differences in people's lives right away, not in like a gridlocked hypothetical future, uh, which is how it's feeling at the federal level, but they can actually change people's lives for the better right away. Um, and it's also where some of the most exciting leaders um, are able to throw their hats in and build power and win, right? Where we're like building up a base of um, uh, leaders who are going to fight for racial and economic justice and have, there's just fewer gatekeepers often um, for some of these seats, right? Um, but I guess, one thing I want to talk about with you is just that the people who are running for those seats need to know and really be um, invested in, maybe even like haunted by the possibility of what could happen in those roles, right? Like I don't want folks running for school board who are just daydreaming of being a senator one day and it's like they're just uh, house of cards LARPing until they get, you know, the big job that they, that they want. I want folks who are running for office who wake up every day thinking about educators and families and schools and our communities and like improving education. Right. So some of it is um, what folks are waking up ready to fight for. And, um, and that doesn't need to be, in a linear path up a ballot, right? Um, Ilya ran for Congress and people often said to him, why don't you run for city council or school board first? But, um, you know, he was an immigrant. He um, was a refugee. He came here with his family when he was really little. He has a background in foreign policy and ending war. And he was like, I love and respect city council members, but I can't do those things, those things that I'm thinking about all the time in that role, I can do that in, in this role. Right. And every person that's running for office does, you know, every office deserves folks that are fired up in that way. Um, so I feel like you asked me another question, but then that's, that's where I went with it. Uh, um, what was the other, um, I mean, like we were just talking about, like, how do we like, like in thinking about like bringing people along with us on these issues that we're saying, like, um, you know, like one of the things we were talking about, I remember we were trying to figure out, like, what do, how do we screen and evaluate, like, let's say county commissioner candidates, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And really getting familiar because I feel like, you know, I think I'm gonna go in a little different direction now. Like, I feel like for a long time, us as progressives, have, and I really feel like, you know, folks on the left who are maybe third party people have done this mm. to an extent in some places too, have like not even looked at local, the, the potential in these local level office, you know, these offices. Yes. 
um, and just always go for like what is like the higher name recognition um, mm. media covered slots. Um, so I feel what you're saying about not limiting people who are new to the political, you know, game, so to speak, as as people running for office. Like, I agree with you. We shouldn't say, oh, you can't run for this because you haven't even run for these other basic. Like, I think that logic mm-hmm. looks at it as like you need to have a junior position before you can step up. Right. Like, I think there's right. a the way we look at these different seats is flawed. Right. Mm-hmm. Like. We yeah. should be looking at having the best possible people in our school board seats, at our county commissions. Like we need amazing, talented people doing all yes. of these things, not just only the best with the most experience go to these particular upper echelon slots. And then there's everyone else. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's probably part of why our local cities and, you know, our local communities are in shambles because we haven't had consistently the right people with the right values always in these seats. So I guess I was asking more of yeah. originally was like, how do we get people understanding mm-hmm. um, or where I'm shifting is how do we get people understanding like the importance and the power in building locally in right. terms of like a lot of these different issues and, you know, progressive values that we're saying are absolute necessity. Like I get it. You know, there's a lot that we want to have happening at the federal level through Congress, but there's really a lot that local and state electeds can do without the federal government. Absolutely. Um, Love that. And like, I mean, I think I think about some of the mayor's races, like mayors are at the forefront of uh, so many vital protections right now, defending the rights of immigrants and refugees, of um, challenging racist criminal justice systems. And um, I think about Michael Tubbs, the mayor of Stockton, California. We worked for him first in his city council race, and then we went really in for his mayoral race after that. And he's doing this pilot initiative for universal basic income, right? Like, he, uh, and he's just one mayor amongst many that are using that job to be like, a, uh, it's like a progressive policy lab for how good things can be when we're innovating with justice and equity at the heart of policy, right? Um, I think about like the Seattle City Council, there's lots of you know challenging things happening obviously in Seattle right now, um, but thinking about leaders like Kashama Sawant, right, uh, and getting to critical mass with progressive power on city council, you know, there, there was a big proposal to invest in a juvenile detention facility. And um, because folks really invested in those city council races and got to a critical mass of votes, there was a vote to divest from that, uh, you know, the school to prison pipeline um, thing and invest that money instead in public education and schools, right? And that wouldn't have happened if there hadn't been a plan to invest early in some progressive city council members' races that cared about it. And the earliness was is also an important point, right? That a lot of times, if you're running a transformative campaign or an insurgent race, uh, it just takes a longer arc for you to build up the resources and the credibility and what you need to do to win. Um, and that's why, you know, we need movement groups like DFA and, and movement aligned folks to go in earlier than um, maybe even a typical election cycle to really support and build with, you know, some of these candidate campaigns over the long haul to get folks over the finish line and then make sure they actually govern the way they said they would when they campaigned. Um, but, um, but I love... I love what you're saying about um, the power in these races. Um, and I, mean, I think Chokwe Lumumba is another great example in Jackson, Mississippi, um, where you know it's not just him, right? It's the whole campaign um, that he ran, and um, you know the the staffers from the staffers to the sort of voter targeting models to the comms plan, like all of the way that they built that campaign is 
reflected in how they're governing now with like boldness and clarity and courage, you know? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that. And we have had some good examples and ideas. I mean, I know just thinking back even to a few years ago, it's still a thing, but it's not talked about as nearly as much domestically, but just watching the growth of the municipal municipalism <laughs> mm. movement in Spain, right, which um, really parallels a lot what we've seen with the people's assemblies, um, as folks have seen in um, Jackson and the Southern People Assembly Movement um, with Project South and others that are really trying to, to build, like, collectively, like, we do have these models of what does it mean to have community building for mm. um, collective power, you know, whether it's in the existing political system or what do alternatives of power look like? Um, so, yes, yeah, so I appreciate you, you know, naming like those, those two mayors in particular. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we have what we're seeing now, even like uh, in Chicago with the, with the, with the new, all the newer aldermen, um, older people, Mm -hmm. who yeah. came into who came into office right um last year replacing several rom um backed incumbents uh -huh. um, who are now leading in conversations in city council on mm -hmm. um you know removing police from schools like in response to you know the community members who helped organize to get them in so mm -hmm. we are seeing this in various ways and very in varying places in and I just, I just really think there's so much potential at the local level, which is like often overlooked because it's not necessarily seen as sexy in terms mm -hmm. of headlines and fundraising. Mm -hmm. um, you know, thinking about traditional, you know, political thought. How do we like? How do we can? How do we organize folks to like move from like the traditional way of thinking about politics and running campaigns to understanding, you know really digging into electoral movement-based organizing that is more suitable for those of us who exist outside of establishment places and spaces. Um, one of my biggest critiques of the Bernie Sanders campaign 2016 and 2020 continues to be that despite the very strong on-point narrative, rhetoric, policies, and platform, institutionally, there are aspects that were still very much run like a traditional political campaign despite really being um you know an underdog going up against the establishment right like like we need to create our own machine taking on a, a large political machine we basically have to create our own alternative machine right to to be able to navigate and do what we need to do how do we like help people or what does it look like to help educate, inform, organize people, so to speak, to understand like the steps we should be making instead of just railing at the DNC about what they're doing wrong? Mm -hmm. Ugh, I love this question and I want to hear your answers too. Um, <laughs> no, no, that's a deep one. Like, how are we going to do it? Uh, I mean, like... I, I mean, yeah, I'm so sorry, but like, I, I think like, I just think, I just think like talking through this with somebody else and some people just listening to me talk is good, but just thinking about like, how do we help? Because I, I, I feel like folks know we need an alternative, yeah. right? But at the same time, we're so like, it's like we're torn because an alternative doesn't necessarily even mean that you absolutely have to go create your own parallel structure necessarily right but like at least another pathway maybe mm. that's a better way of describing it right like we need progressives need a pathway to electoral victory mm. that is not necessarily just mimic traditional because we've talked about this too like even we were evaluating like candidates in terms of their viability right or like could right. they win um i know some folks are not necessarily happy with wesley bell today but I use that campaign as an example of like their win number. We were looking at their number and we were looking at what they were doing. And like they had this very ambitious number. And mind you, they exceeded that number. But yeah. it was because of like a lot of the collective organizing and buy-in that existed outside of traditional um, electoral political spaces that people tend to think about, right? Like mm. the community really bought in 
to that race in a very particular way. And you can't necessarily just cut and paste and duplicate that. I mean, the wins we just saw in New York recently, right, with um, Jabari Brisport and like uh, 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 Mondaire Jones, mm-hmm. um, uh, 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 Jamal Bowen, like all these, all these amazing wins we just saw coming out of New York. Like you, you can't just cookie cutter replace and do exactly the same. But there's a different way people are building now um, around campaigns and around value and who yeah. should be invested in as a candidate. That is that is different than what we've seen in in, in past years. Yep. Yeah. I love this. Okay, I have many thoughts. So get ready. Okay, <laughs> I feel like um, the thing you're saying about a pathway to victory, like I want campaigns to have a theory for their victory path and to understand their electorate and have some vision of what they're working backwards from, of what it'll take to win. And sometimes that can be, it can be really arduous, right? You can know, like, we're going to have to mobilize, like, uh, expand the electorate in this set of ways. We're going to have to, um, you know, persuade however many people. And it can be a difficult path, but it still might be worth it, right? Like, it, uh, winnability is mostly made up, right? Like every way, every race is winnable and every race is losable. The voters are there, right? It's like how good and compelling and scalable is the thing you're going to build, right? So I feel like campaigns um, need to be ready to build something real and need to have, you know, some understanding of the electorate and, and what it will take to do it. Um, And Sometimes that also means building uh, in a multi-cycle way. Like the places you're describing in New York, I think about Chicago also um, and some of the aldermanic victories. All of those happened in places where sometimes there were many cycles of people taking on a machine candidate and getting closer and then the organizing never stopping and then continuing to, you know, to build over time getting closer and then, you know, maybe two or three cycles in unseating a candidate and, and winning with, um, you know, a real progressive champion. Right. Um, so I think thinking about the pathway to victory is one big thing. And I think the values of a reflective democracy are just, more and more crucial to me over time. And what I mean by that is there are so many democratic best practices, quote unquote, we're on a podcast, so you can't see the quote hands I just made, but quote unquote best practices are just rooted in whiteness and um, only work really for self-funding older white men because that's who they were written for. They don't even work to help elect um, the folks that I'm most excited to see run for office and win and lead. Like if they, if some of these practices worked, I would encourage candidates to do them, but they weren't written um, for uh, for a lot of the folks that you just named, right? Um, New York. And so we need to adjust and change and build different um, different tactical best practices and theories that actually serve the movements that we're, that we're part of. Um, and I feel like that looks in one part, like questioning voter targeting models in particular. So there is a really abiding conventional wisdom that it is always more worthwhile to invest your time and money, uh, on, um, persuading a pool on, in national politics, it usually looks like persuading a tiny pool of white, hypothetically swing, but rarely actually swing right-leaning voters instead of investing in black voters and brown voters and white progressive but lower turnout propensity voters, right? And that is cyclically disenfranchising. Uh, it lowers voter turnout. It's vote suppressing. Um, and 
it undercuts the ability of some of the most amazing candidates that we got to get what they need to to win. Um, so changing that 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 idea is really key for races all over the country, right? Um, mm-hmm. um, and we can see the impacts of it right now. Like, there's a reason that Biden's first ad as the nominee for president was um, a pretty appalling anti-China ad that appeals to nobody. Like that's ostensibly centering this hypothetical pool of white, right-leaning voters um, when there's just massive communities that um, deserve the honor and respect of a well-funded campaign that is targeting them and, and communicating to their lived experiences and needs and values. And that's how we're gonna actually win and fight back against these white supremacist fascists um, that are currently in office. Mm, mm, yeah. <laughs> that's the whole thing. I mean, like there, when we're thinking about just like what's happening and this, like this is even what you just said about like the Biden campaign part. Um, I had spoke with uh, Grace Pay from um, Asian American Midwest Progressives. Uh, I think Grace also works with Asian Americans Advancing Justice out in Chicago, and uh, um, we were just talking about when that ad came out. Like her and some others authored an open letter to the Biden campaign about how to have the conversation that it seemed like he ought to be having instead of just feeding into what many folks who signed on to the letter, you know, called out as uh, feeding into not just anti-Chinese, but anti-Asian, you know, uh, unfortunately a lot of Americans are ignorant and just think Chinese means Asian, Mm -hmm. Um, but just really feeding into it in the way in which, and we see this not just with that ad, right? We see this in many instances where Democrats trying to show or prove and who they're trying to prove it to, I don't understand. But like yeah. they use Republican talking points that mm-hmm. end up undermining parts of our community, right? Parts of the quote unquote base that they know they need to win. And it's like this quest for winning back the elusive white voter mm-hmm. um, who has not voted Democrat in several decades in yep. you know, large numbers. Like you're not breaking more than 40, 42%. And that's consistently, right? Mm-hmm. Despite how hard they try to go on the record, it doesn't budge. But this this still desire, and it's not, and, 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 and I always find myself having to say to people, like it's not saying that, no, you shouldn't talk to white people. And we've been talking about this a bit mm-hmm. recently too, you and I. But it's like the how we're talking to people about the issues and like how we're not working on also organizing and bringing them along with us mm-hmm. to progress towards equity and justice. Mm-hmm. And it's like old, the old way that Dems will still like feel like they have to kind of go like slightly racist to mm-hmm. appeal to the white voters to bring them back. But then we'll tell you that the reason why white voters don't vote a certain way is because they're scared economically. Like, how do we how do we start parsing this out, Annie? Like, how do we separate like the economic anxiety and fear, which literally all of us have right now, unless you're like a millionaire um, mm-hmm. and not I sold a book and I happen to make a billion a million dollars millionaire, but like a for real millionaire right. um, versus what we are, what we do still t- tend to see from, you know, um, leading Democrats when they're they're running for for office. Hmm. Yep. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, um, I think a couple of things, right. This is like a, it's like a snake eating its tail of obsessing over the same tiny pool of the electorate that of, you know, these white right leaning voters that, um, Democrats have been losing in district after district for many cycles now. Um, and, um, you know, the first thing is investing in the vast pool of people, particularly black voters, brown voters, um, and folks that are statistically showing up as less likely to turn out, which is also, um, there's so many terms of art for that, that 
I find a little problematic and questionable, right? Because it's using past behavior to predict future behavior without taking organizing or the, these external factors into consideration around um, voter suppression and gerrymandering and all of the other reasons that people have a harder time um, making their ballots cast. Uh, but also those problems are things that campaigns and democratic operatives could invest in and work on changing, right? Um, so one big thing is about uh, shifting and thinking about uh, voters who, um, you know, don't have the same uh, consistent voting history and getting real about why and what barriers there are to overcome with that. And not just assuming um, that they're not going to vote, right? Um, because that also is about who, what candidates are recruited to run, what candidates are seen as electable, um, and what candidates are told that they can say once they're running so that they're not um, alienating this, again, pretty hypothetical pool of voters. We saw that in Virginia state elections um, all over the place, right, where there were um, there was a vanguard of progressive state candidates running, led by progressive women of color. It was led by Hala Ayala, Elizabeth Guzman, Jennifer Carroll Foy, who's now running for governor, which is great. Um, and a lot of those folks were told, you know, uh, that to flip the districts, to flip those state house seats, uh, they needed to, um, you know, not talk about racial and economic justice and their lives in the way that. Um, in the way that they had been, right? And what they did instead was actually expand the electorate and build power in critical districts. And um, it was like a reverse coattails effect. They and the campaigns that they were running and the values they were running them on welcomed in a whole bunch of new voters and were crucial to electing, um, uh, to flipping the governor seats and the lieutenant governor seats, right? Um, and that was, again, defying that sort of conventional playbook, but saying, nope, this other pool of voters are worth investing in and we're going to do it and we're going to run with those values at the heart of our campaigns. Um, and that reverse coattails effect is something that we've seen in a bunch of places and could happen again this cycle. Uh, <clears throat> uh, we just need to, you know, go in to support the candidates that are doing it. Um, and then you also asked me about white people, like white voters. One of the groups I've been working with uh, recently is showing up for racial justice surge. Love them. Um, and we've been doing this project called Call Collect Your Cousins. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, Collect Your Cousins. And it's just white folks calling white folks. And right, we started in Georgia and Pennsylvania. Um, and in just a few weeks, we've done about half a million calls into these States to have pretty transparent conversations with folks about, you know, where they're at um, and also where they're at in this moment with coronavirus, the pandemic, um, and this moment of reckoning around police violence uh, and the movement for Black lives. And these conversations aren't like simple one-offs, right? They're really about, uh, you know, our shared stake in changing what's happening right now for the better. But I think the key thing there is we're being honest and transparent about uh, racism and the economic pain that people are in right now and how they're interwoven, right? That um, uh, white supremacy and the way the Trump Republicans are running on it is hurting everybody. It's hurting uh, it's not hurting white people in the same way that it's hurting the IPOC folks, right? But um, uh, that it's holding everybody back. And those conversations are pretty key for how we're going to um, change vote behavior and move folks to action and, and build for the long haul, right? We can't, like, avoid it. Uh, we have to be real with people. So uh, the Collective Presence Project has been pretty amazing. I, say. I love it. The Collector Cousins Project. <laughs> like, 
the name, right? Also, yes. my literal cousin joined one of the call blocks, and I was like, oh, this, you know, it's just, it is. It's like a oh, family, that's cute. A family oh, that's, that's, mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> just, just thinking about, you know, like having white progressive organizers and volunteers collecting their cousins, right? Like, I, I just, it seems counterintuitive, but it, it, it isn't something that has necessarily been as focused on as a part of the conversation um, around how do we collectively build power? What does it look like to organize, you know, around equity and justice in this way? And like when you were, when, when we were talking through like questions about like the script and like other stuff, I was just thinking like, this is really smart. It reminds me of a conversation I had with um, folks who had started a DSA chapter back in um, when I used to, where I used to live in Charleston. And we had this really amazing conversation about what does it mean to do organizing um, that is grounded in, in like values of racial justice and economic mm-hmm. justice and equity in, you know, rural and predominantly white spaces, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I am in just beginning stages of conversations with folks in, you know, rural Kentucky who are venturing to do this something similar um, through organizing around a group called Hillbillies Against Hate. Um, and we're seeing, you know, folks really stepping into their own organizing power and also being very clear, saying like me denouncing, you know, this type of behavior, mentality, whatever you want to call it, actually doesn't take away from me. And in fact, us being united actually helps put us on the right track for my community as well. And so it's been really interesting, like watching how this is unfolding versus the idea that we all just need to be class aligned and not touch race at all because it makes people uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And like making that implicit stuff explicit because in Mm -hmm. all spaces, you know, we as white folks aren't used to having our lives racialized explicitly because we're used to being thought of as universal and being able to name um, name that as something that is happening and listen to folks and um, share that mutual stake. We just can't go around it. We got to go through it uh, to build the power that we need. And that's, again, not necessarily a one cycle thing. I think that it, we're showing that it is going to, change folks voting behavior, right? That actually when you talk to folks about racial and economic justice, people are into it. There's a huge swath of the electorate that is mobilized and inspired and, and values aligned with those ideas. We just don't always invest in talking to them at scale, right? Because again, all so much money and time is um, invested in folks that don't share those values, but there's actually more of us which is comforting to me in this moment, right? Um, There are more people that, um, you know, want to vote according to those values if we do the work to make it seem like elections are uh, a worthwhile structure for them to try to make those changes. Because that's the other big thing is a lot of people just don't have faith in, um, in the, that political process making the changes in their lives that they want to see and, you know, approaching it with humility and not a sense of entitlement about that, like where that doubt and where that, that real grief about the democratic process is coming from so that we can solve it. That's another big, big thing, right? That we have to earn, earn these votes and also talk to people about things that they believe in and care about. Um, so yeah, I think, um, I love that, the, um, what do you call it? Hillbillies against hate. I love it. I mean, like, and, and the thing is too, like, there are folks like, um, like, you know, who are like, what should we be reading? What should we be doing? I don't, and I, I appreciate so much. Like I, I, I you know, have had access to space and camaraderie and been in colleagueship with folks 
who have been doing this way longer than me. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But like really appreciating the opportunity to sit and share space and learn. And so I absolutely always appreciate when people say, you know, what step should I be taking? Or like, how do I do? Not because like I'm a gatekeeper or what I say absolutely matters. and But I do think that some folks in our spaces do fall into, because we bring we bring the harm and trauma with us of existing within traditional political spaces and other mm-hmm. traditional, you know, institutions into, you know, progressive spaces. So even in the middle of creating our own alternatives or better ways of doing things, we still have brought some of those harmful behaviors like gatekeeping mm-hmm. um, and some of that institutional thinking that does make it difficult for folks who if you weren't already a part of certain groups, then you don't have opportunities to break into certain spaces. And like, I, I do appreciate the conversations, you know, with the few folks that I've, like I said, that I've interacted with who are, who are starting to have these conversations. I mean, we really saw, I mean, I was really impressed with the way Charles Booker ran his Senate campaign. Um, and for folks who did follow, if you did not follow, like he had a saying which I I, re, I was teasing um, Representative Attica Scott, you know her, Representative Booker, love you know, her. served together. I love her. I was She's teasing. Her. I was I was like I really feel like Charles stole that for me because I've been saying from the hood to the holler for like <laughs> seven. I don't know how many years now, but like <laughs> it's one of those things. Um, because y'all know I used to live in West Virginia and really had an awakening in terms of like just when we talk about commonality and organizing and just seeing the potential and possibility. And so um, Attica and, and I were talking about like with Charles and the hood to the holler organization he started, but like just the way he was organizing. Right. And Charles Mm -hmm. as a black man would go into rural Kentucky and have the same conversations, the same bold values regardless of what room he was going into and and not tell people you know well I'm not going to talk about that because this is what I'm here to talk about but really just engage and build and connect Mm -hmm. and while it took a while you know in terms of the momentum but this is because when we're building and we're up against national infrastructures and huge donor bases it's a challenge but like I'm so amazed by what Charles and those who worked with Charles and, and, and helped build that effort actually, you know, created. And I, I appreciate your point earlier and I didn't highlight the, I didn't go back, just go back when you were talking about some of the victories that we've seen in the past year or two, that they're actually building on the fact that people may have run before and lost, but mm-hmm. didn't give up and have continued that organizing, continued that grind continued building and building until we you know there was the the strong challenge I think about you know similar while different because it's it's a neighborhood in Chicago but I think about Andre Vasquez running you know for aldermen in Chicago um and and taking on um again a powerful uh Ron Back incumbent and and the obstacles that were perceived that he continued to just because the community had already been organizing, reclaimed, and other organ or other groups had already been in that in that area, had already been doing that work, and it was not just simply that Andre stepped into it, but was able to build into it with a very good political ethic and understanding of what does it mean to be built in into community. I just saw a post from from Andre. I don't know if it was his personal or his his alderman page, but talking about like the people's budget. So still keeping true to the value. So like Annie, we get these great people who have the values that we want and mm-hmm. then they get in office. And it's like that we, 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 I think we're starting to move into this understanding of like talking about co-governance mm-hmm. with our progressive champions instead of just sending them into the wolf's den, which, mm-hmm. which is good when we can send folks in as a group, as a squad. Right. Like, but mm-hmm. still, they we still need to kind of continue those relationships and organizing and talking with them and being present in terms of co-governance. I mean, this is something that um one of the direct one of the staff from uh, Take Action Minnesota was talking with me about earlier in the the the, the spring about mm-hmm. like how it's very important that we have that as the other component. It's not enough 
our work doesn't stop at election day. And this gets mm. back to also the original, you know, opening thoughts about we talk about election cycles as these like pieces of time. And a lot of people, mainstream media primarily, talk about election cycles as only midterms and presidentials. Mm-hmm. Talk to me just a little bit about like shifting past this mentality of like, you know, only thinking about these two year cycles of midterms and presidentials. And then also the work that we still need to do. Yes, you can take a break and breathe, but mm-hmm. there's still work that we do like in between these, these recognized points of organizing. Like, yes. yes. Um, I feel like we said this all the time, not to stress everybody out, but there's no such thing as an off year, like an mm-hmm. off year. Like the act, that phrase actually kind of like um, uh, upsets me. I mean, the the building needs to be consistent and over time. And yes, there's like a crescendo, uh, but um, you know that whole hockey stick of work. Like if you're looking at the graph, right, um, where we lock candidates in a call time room for months and months so that they can raise a bunch of money so that they can hire media consultants to do big ad buys in like targeted TV. And then maybe in a very final push, a pretty transactional, sometimes, you know, it's like almost violently transactional final two week push, maybe where you're knocking on some doors that is not building the reflective democracy that we need. And it's not going to mean that we can govern alongside people once they actually get into office, um, you know, to um, organize voting blocks and have the mandate when they get in there uh, to fight to pass all the stuff that we want them to pass and that they ran on, right? Like um, the city work was a really <clears throat> interesting example and in state legislators, in state legislatures too, were like sending in a lone hero, right? Like going all in to um, send some um, progressive city council member uh, or school board member uh, into office. And this happens in Congress too, right? But um, when we sent them in alone, they very quickly had to figure out how to build power um, within these systems and often ended up breaking their own hearts and the hearts of people that got them there because they didn't have a squad with them, right? They just were trying to navigate these power systems that, um, you know, were, were not set up for that. So, you know, in the city program for DFA, a lot of what we thought about was like, can we send in a squad of people, right? Like this is an Avengers movie, not a Batman movie. <laughs> they need a full team. Um, and that also helps with, the way that you do campaigns, right? For some of these city campaigns, if you have a slate of folks that are running on shared values, you can do better polling. You can do better, um, you know, more scaled up campaigning. And, you know, the whole campaign can be better if you have a a slate of folks. Um, And then it helps once you actually get in there, right? To get to critical mass, like what I was saying about the Seattle City Council. Um, And I think Chicago is another great example. thinking about the uh the 39th district in chicago mm-hmm. also right so um there this guy jeremy carpin ran for um alderman against tony barrios a pretty like machine candidate she'd been in there for a long time was part of a you know chicago political family uh and on the Green Party ticket, he got to 34%, which was way more than anyone expected, right? Um, and then the next cycle, a guy named Will Gazzardi ran, again, on this like pretty bold progressive platform, and he came within 125 votes, so way mm-hmm. closer. But like he wouldn't have, he might not have done it, right, if that Green Party candidate hadn't gotten way farther than anyone thought, and if the movement groups and organizations that... Um, built that campaign hadn't continued organizing relentlessly, right? Like they, they kept the movement work going and the accountability and like protesting ROM and, um, you know, taking on machine throughout that cycle. Right. So then he got 
was now 125 votes. And then the next cycle, uh, that candidate, Will Gazzardi, ran again, and he won with 60%. It was a landslide. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, I think that is only a, that is a little bit about those candidates, but what it's really about are the movement groups and the leaders on the ground that just um, never, ever stopped organizing, even through a Chicago primary, which is in March. And if you have spent time in Chicago in March, which I know you have, I feel like we should get, there should be like a special formula for door knocking based on how many degrees below zero it is. <laughs> Cause you're just like in the tundra <laughs> turn again to apartment buildings to knock on doors. It's really, it's really real out there. Um, and, uh, but, but yeah, that's, I, those are crucial elections that change people's lives that, um, are not on that typical cycle, right? The Virginia elections I was naming, those are, uh, there are elections in Virginia every single year um, for various seats. And uh, to a certain extent, that's that's true in a lot of places, right? There's no such thing as an off year. Um, mm-hmm. So, Yeah, I mean, like the Chicago, Detroit probably knows about this as well. Like, I feel like those... Well, I guess it depends on when their cycle is, but, like, having elections in February, March in places like Detroit and Chicago and other points super far north is mm-hmm. is intentional. Like, mm-hmm. there, there, there can't be any other reason for it because, um, and I did, like, I, I again, I use, um, you know, Andre as an example because he had so many, I remember he had so many posts about, how they were uh, knocking doors. Um, I mean, but conversely, having summer, summer mid summer elections in places like Arizona, right? Yep. I remember Mark, our our, our oh, friend Marcus Farrell, like mm-hmm. he one of his fundraisers. I think his most successful fundraiser was buy my canvassers water because it was a hundred mm-hmm. and whatever degrees in Phoenix, and people were his team was knocking doors still. So. I, I mean, it's amazing what our folks do despite yeah. the extreme weather. <laughs> totally. I do remember just um, when I was working on the healthcare fight, um, mm-hmm. I was supporting a bunch of organizers in North Dakota. And one of them who I loved, her name is Tess. She lived in Granville, North Dakota, in Minot. And um, she was late. She was like late to this press conference that we were organizing about healthcare access. And I was like, Tess, what is up? And she was like, I'm on my way, but the, uh, my door has frozen off its hinges. Like the, it was so cold in North Dakota. Um, and the door had frozen off and she was still hosting a massive rally. And it was really, it's just, you know. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was like, fix your door, but then, then we'll see you at the, see you. (laughs) Because, because. That's why I love it. Like, 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 okay, do what you gotta do, but then you're still gonna come, right? Because, I mean, because that's what organizers do. And I would not tell you, I, I will never forget this. You know, Annie, Annie, like, is giving me my budget. We're, we're, we're trying to decide what to do for the candidates at the local level. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm like so in mom mode. We're just coupon clipping the revolution. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what we do. Like, we're resourceful and we figure out a way to make it work. Mm-hmm. And we have seen, I mean, like, I just think back to even, you know, the rock star that, that everyone sees her as now, but remembering when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was oh. this young, you know, hopeful elected, and mm-hmm. then that video went viral. Yeah. But really, but because it really captured and really spoke to something that all of us recognized and understood um, in terms of, like, the hustle, right, mm-hmm. between... If you're an organizer, you know, because that's what your heart is saying, but it's not necessarily what your your actual day job is. You still have to do something else, mm-hmm. right, to pay your bills or yeah. you have to supplement your bills or whatever the case may be. Like, we all understand, like, what she was saying, whether you had to take your shoes off and switch shoes to get on the train or not. You understood what was going on in the moment. And just, just so just, just thinking as we wrap up, like, you know, the stories that we tell and share, right? And like, I mean, if we were a bunch of like old old people in a, of a certain age in a different 
you know, era, we'd be sitting around a fire drinking some type of ale, Mm -hmm. sharing our war stories. (laughs) But -hmm. there's so much value in these anecdotes and conversations about that time we did that amazing thing and lessons that can be learned, right? And so, Annie, just like, what what's like a parting thought that you have for folks who are, you know, trying to find their space in terms of electoral organizing, electoral politics? Like, even if you don't have, you know, particular pedigree in terms of your education or particular, you know, pedigree in terms of like, you know, fancy campaign resumes, like, how people can still contribute and show up and be a valuable part of the work that is being done now. What a beautiful question. And like the framing of it. Um, I feel like uh, I'm going to go to movement school because I just Mm. finished, uh, you know, teaching this course. And um, also I think yesterday it was, one of the movement school founders, Amona Duverge's birthday. So if she hears this happy birthday, she's amazing. Um, and uh, I think it was her 23rd birthday. Oh, she is. Uh, I just think of, I'm going to, I'm thinking about her because mm-hmm. um, she was a crucial leader building Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's victory. She helped strategize the field operation the first cycle and she really led the way in doing it again this cycle and this cycle she was doing it um in a space where she was doing it in some of the hardest hit um zip codes in the country right people were really in pain um with COVID-19 um AOC's district was hit so hard right um and she is a young Latina woman, which means she was also constantly underestimated and, um, you know, talked over and told what was possible, right, in, in these political spaces. And some of the most brilliant practitioners I know have that experience, right, where they are told that what they're trying to do is silly or impossible um, or illogical. And... Um, I feel like I've been doing this stuff for feels like 250 years. I feel like I've been doing it for a while. And time after time, I've seen folks do like what Alona did, where they're expanding the electorate meaningfully and welcoming folks in that pundits and um, other practitioners are saying, you know, it's not possible. You can't actually make that happen, but they're proving it. Right. Um, and we've seen, I've seen people do that in, races in Idaho and in races in Minnesota and in Arizona, right? Like we know that it's possible because we're actually doing it. Um, And, you know, there are organizations that are here to help, help manifest that, right. Uh, You know, folks like movement school um, and, and others, right. There's like institutions that are designed to help welcome folks in and get some of those skills that you need to, to build on those things, but I guess I would just say we we know that these things are possible because folks are making it happen all over the place and um, transforming the electorate and building a more reflective democracy. And so, uh, I would just hold on to that if you are an aspiring an electoral campaigner or you just want better things to happen in the political space. Um, you know, know that those folks are there and know that anyone who is like telling you that they are the only expert on something is probably trying to sell you something. Um, Mm -hmm. Trying to sell you something, whether it's an overpriced (laughs) suite of ads on broadcast TV where your people might not be watching broadcast television. It's a whole lot. And that's a whole nother conversation, but go ahead. Oh, just like when I was, my first campaign manager job, I was hiring consultants at the same time as I was trying to buy a used car. And I was like, I'm using the same skill set. Like you were trying to sell me like a um, musty Chevy with water in the trunk, but for the movement, like I could, you know, I was like, this is the same negotiating set of skills that I need to assess what's happening. So 
Yeah. Yep. So I appreciate you so much for taking time, Annie. And I always enjoy talking with you. Like, folks, seriously, um, check out the links that are included in the description if you just want to, you know, know more about like movement school and some of the other, um, you know, things that Annie has touched on. Annie, I've touched on this episode. And Annie, thank you so much for joining me. I am thoroughly delighted. You are a visionary and I love you. And I love this conversation. And I hope we get to just talk again soon slash all the time. You're the best. (laughs) You will. All right. I have so many feels. Me too. Me too. And yeah, and for folks listening, you should join the if you want to join the Collect Your Cousins project, you can go to showing up for racial justice.org and also movement school, movementschool.us, um, where we do a bunch of trainings and workshops and yeah, all it's it's legit, legit. Shout out to Gabe. Like movement school is is a uh, yeah. Shout out to Gabe, shout out to Alona, shout out to Imani is the new Dean of Movement Building there. Ooh, like okay. amazing- dean of Movement Building. Oh, that's a cool title. That's like, a great title, right? I, this is what I gotta say though. And then we can <laughs> I like I love the titles. Like we are visioning and figuring things out for ourselves instead of trying to like fit into existing categories and titles. The the creation of titles has been like it's a thing. It's an art. It is mm. definitely an art. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love it. Matter. Yeah. Naming things is. Naming uh, things matter. We need to name all the things. All right. This has been great. I love talking with you, with you Annie. And this has been another edition of Way with Fanoa. And um, I hope you all enjoy. And please like, share, and if you haven't already, subscribe. All right. Peace.